Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Wombs in Labour, Transnational Commercial Surrogacy in India by Amrita Pandey, published by Columbia University Press. Amrita is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Cape Town. The book is an ethnography of a transnational commercial surrogacy clinic in northern India, and it looks into the lives of women and also the brokers and also the clients who are involved in this transnational surrogacy process. It's really a very, very deep ethnography, and I had the pleasure of talking with Amrita just a few moments before. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Amrita Pandey to New Books in South Asian Studies. Thanks so much for this wonderful book, and thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks, Ian. So I think I'm right when I'm saying that this is the first sort of ethnographic research into transnational surrogacy in India. And it's not only, we're not only having it on the show because it's the first, but also it's an extremely deep ethnography. You can really tell the richness. Um, it becomes very, um, it becomes very apparent through the pages that you, you had a very deep relationship with many of these women. Uh, and it's also clear that as a researcher, as an author, you were immersed very much in their lives. And so I was wondering, especially because of this, we always ask people to tell a little bit about themselves, but especially because you're so involved in the book, I was wondering if you could first start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your past interests, and where the idea came to to write this book. Um, okay, so, well, I'm a sociologist, and I'm I was born and raised in India, but I've been traveling for a while now and lived part of my life in the United States, where I did my doctoral studies. Then I went for my postdoc work to Lebanon, and I lived in North Lebanon for two, three years. Now I'm teaching in the University of Cape Town in South Africa. So I've been quite global for the longest. And for the longest, I have been interested in issues around, um, broadly around gender and globalization. Um, but within globalization, what has constantly driven me is not so much the um, staggering macro movements of goods, technology, capital, and such, but how uh, these global processes are affect and get affected by the most intimate of relations, basically those around uh, gender, reproduction, and sometimes reproductive labor. And um, I explore exactly this relationship between the global and if we can call it the intimate in my two most recent projects one is of course this uh, project on surrogacy in india and the other one that i just finished is on um, paid care work in lebanon and i have theorized both as perfect examples of liminal labor markets that constantly and very interestingly blur the boundary between production and reproduction. Um, but but my interest in surrogacy was spurred actually by a very short newspaper article that I read in, um, I think, in 2006. And at that time, surrogacy was still at its infancy in India, and barely anyone had heard about it. And this really short article, I think it was in The Guardian, 
uh, described it as India's new form of outsourcing. And at that time, I was a PhD student at University of Massachusetts. Um, and this news article really unsettled me. So so I start, first of all, slashes of Canadian uh, feminist Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, started coming through my mind. And in her book, Atwood had talked about a class of women who would be valued merely as breeders of children of the privileged race and class. And that's, that's the kind of images that started coming to my mind when I read this newspaper article. And I was not happy because at that time uh, I was in the United States and I was constantly fighting against this orientalized image of India as a land of um, child laborers, uh, slum dogs. But now I started thinking, oh, my God, now we are going to start thinking about India as a land of baby farms. <laughs> and that really made me queasy. So I started looking around on the Internet. I started trying to see whether there were academic articles, journalistic articles written on this, but nothing. I found nothing on this really critical issue, which lies at this intersection of my exact research interest, gender and globalization. So that basically pushed me into starting my ethnographic journey to India. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can and you start the book like this as well, really showing your own yeah, fascination, but also um yeah also yeah surprised that nothing had been written about it before when it was such an issue so it's it's um you can really feel this sort of impetus there in the book so maybe let's set the scene a little bit for people who don't know um very much about how it works i mean what what is transnational surrogacy how does it work and how widespread is it in india Okay, yeah. So maybe the first thing I should say is that um, transnational surrogacy does not exist only in India. Uh, it has actually the world leader right now is California in the United States. Uh, but India is catching up really quickly. And uh, the reasons are quite obvious. Of course, the first uh, reason is the sheer economics of it, because surrogacy packages cost about a fourth in India as compared to California. But that is just one part of the puzzle. Uh, clients are attracted by a combination of factors. So I've, I've interviewed many clients in the process of writing this book. And um, there are a couple of things that make them choose India. Uh, one is, of course, that they think India is safe as a destination of medical tourism. So uh, you can get five-star luxury hospital hotels hotels actually which offer the most sophisticated technologies are very clean uh, they are english-speaking doctors very often educated from the united states or london um, one of the things that they that draws a lot of clients is the complete lack of regulations um, and which means what this means is that it's a win-win situation for the clients in many ways because the clinics almost all the clinics offer services that are banned or heavily regulated in other parts of the world. So everything is offered like a package deal to the clients, literally a package deal. So for instance, uh, the many clinics offer not that not just that they'll take care of picking up the client from the airport, but also that they'll make sure that the baby's name is put in the passport. So so these package deals are offered. So see Taj Mahal while we put your embryo in a Petri dish is something I mentioned <laughs> in the a book because this is a very catchy phrase used by these um, uh, surrogacy online um, brokers, if I can call them that. But this attracts a lot of people. But but what makes India even more attractive, and this is something that I am pointing out in the book, is the immense structural inequality between the clients and the surrogates, which is convenient, very convenient for the clients during and after the contract period, because 
is there anywhere else in the world where surrogates can be kept under constant surveillance in dormitory style life uh, is a working class indian woman who has very little understanding of any of the procedures either medical or legal uh, around surrogacy is, is she likely to fight for custody over a baby that she gave birth to for clients in california no and this is what makes india so attractive um you asked about um uh the scale the scale mm-hmm. of the uh, industry in india well there are at the moment 3000 clinics who officially registered to offer surrogacy services in india but i recently read an article which estimates that there are 30000 which have the which has the technology so they could launch onto surrogacy anytime in india and um, i haven't yet found a very accurate estimate of how much revenue is generating uh but but uh, estimates run between 400 million per year to one conducted by the indian council of medical research which puts it at over 2 billion us dollars per year so we are talking about a huge and booming industry hmm. Hmm. thank you yeah that's really yeah sets the sets the scene well for us i was wondering if you could tell us about why you chose the title for your book the title of your book is wombs in labor what were you trying to emphasize with this title <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. well um i i think i should quickly give you a background to other lenses so if not labor what are the other lenses available for viewing surrogacy and i i know a lot of people don't really talk about surrogacy um, while they have dinner but but it is actually not a very specialized topic and a lot of debating about surrogacy has been going on not just in the medical circles but um in feminist groups uh, the discussion ethical legal social debating and this has been going on for quite a while now uh, since the 1970s actually and um, in the book i talk about um kind of loosely framing these kind of um discussions into four categories one is of course the liberal feminists who defend this practice of surrogacy and have emphasized a woman's right to do what she wants with her body but the rest of the scholars are quite critical about this um practice they either talk about the inherent immorality of this practice that um commodifies women pregnancy children then a lot of feminist literature again about uh, the potentially exploitative conditions um and the multiple systems of inequality possible within the practice of surrogacy and um, the most recent kind which i think are the most nuanced um scholarship on this are the ethnographic work which are based on the lived realities of surrogacy and um and and yeah so this this recent work which is really talking to the surrogates the clients the brokers very few exist right now but they do exist and uh, <laughs> these scholars um of course give a more nuanced perspective i think than the people who were uh, talking about this in abstraction but still the the fr- the the way people look at surrogacy is it continues to be one of intense anxiety oh my god this is really wrong and this anxiety of course intensifies when we talk about the surrogates coming from a developing country like india and and if you look at all this literature that i just talked about since the 1970s uh, you'll see that all the discussion is about surrogacy in the euro american context 
And it's not surprising because commercial surrogacy actually did not exist. Um, at least people did not know about it outside of Euro-America uh, till very recently. But what's so interesting is that even though there was no empirical findings or empirical studies about surrogacy outside of um, the, if I can call it the developed world or what I say, what I call the global north in my book, outside of these con uh, contexts, feminists especially have been rather making very alarming predictions about surrogacy. And this has influenced the frame of surrogacy a lot, frame of uh, looking at surrogacy. And um, whenever feminists think about surrogacy spreading to the developing world, they have used words like reproductive prostitutes, reproductive brothels, baby farms, or white embryos. So this is the kind of literature and scholarship and the frame I had in my mind when I made that journey from the United States to this small uh, city in India, which I call a Garf in my book. It's a pseudonym for the city in India and the clinic that I studied in depth. And I went in the, the, with these frames, of course, and but when I started studying this industry, I started living with the surrogates, literally, because the surrogates adopted me. Uh, I started living with them in the hostel. I cooked for them. I prayed with them. I visited their families and children. I spoke to the middlemen, the middle women, and the clients. I started realizing over these eight years that I've done this study that this textbook can kind of Eurocentric understanding of surrogacy was not going to work for the kind of surrogacy that I was witnessing in India. And I also started realizing that one of the reasons why this scholarship was limiting is that it talks about surrogacy mostly as in the sphere of reproduction. And they talk about new realities of mothering, but, but the conversation is all about mothering and reproduction. Also, a lot of this scholarship talks about surrogacy in abstraction. So this became inadequate for me. So what I'm doing in uh, Wombs and Labor, the book, is that I'm trying to shift the frame. Instead of discussing surrogacy in abstraction as a moral dilemma or as a potentially exploitative practice, I am choosing to analyze it as um, an empirical reality a flourishing multi-billion dollar industry and start getting to the nuts and bolts of this industry, uh, we realize that it's not just about two classes of women. It's not just about new forms of mothering. It's actually much, much more than that. It's about women in India who are grappling with a whole set of new identities. They're trying to get involved in a very stigmatized, very... Uh, corporal and very unusual form of service provision. They're also trying to negotiate at the same time a medical system was that was till now not available to them at all because they are poor women in a state like India. And yes, of course, it is true that these women are being, uh, some of these women are forced into surrogacy by their families, very often by their husbands and their in-laws. But there are many, many more who are negotiating with their families to take part in this process and this market. So the reason why I chose to shift the frame and view surrogacy as a form of labor emerging with globalization, because I, 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 that is exactly what I found, that this was an unusual form of labor that completely and radically 
uh, challenges the socially constructed binary between production and reproduction. And of course, I am aware of a lot of feminist critique of this practice. And uh, and I know that the surrogates are making this choice, if we can call it a choice, out of a very limited set of choices available to them. But instead of dismissing all labor markets, which go like this, and dismissing this labor market as inherently oppressive, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to recognize uh, and validate and evaluate the choices that these all these women make to participate in this market, because I believe that only when we comprehensively and sensitively and from the ground evaluate these choices can we actually really not in abstraction but really start discussing the many intersecting layers of domination that shape these choices and this market so that's my very long answer to your question why wombs and labor because that's that is the crux of the story and that is what's holding the book together the frame of labor and that and I'm in the various chapters of this book I'm exploring the various dimensions of this unique form of labor lying somewhere at the cusp of production and reproduction. And I think that's the that's the beauty of ethnography that you can really it allows it really allows a deep understanding of of the the lives of people rather than just taking yeah, an abstract or political position you you explore from the other way around which is which is what works really well and it really comes out throughout the book. But before we go in depth into the clinic as um, as you do throughout the book. Um, in chapter two, you sort of lay out the, the legal framework because this is sort of quite, maybe we can say contradictory in India's cases. There's been quite a disciplining, controlling um, state when it comes to reproduction of poor women and reproduction reproductive yeah, abilities or rights of, of poor women and then and then your international trans sorry transnational surrogacy seems to somehow sit in maybe not in opposition but askew with the sort of disciplining um regimes of the state so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the 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 legal framework within which this takes place yeah, the legal framework. Yes, like 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 as you do in chapter two, you know, because you know the state has been quite controlling and disciplining in terms of its attitude towards childbirth, and yet suddenly this is like suddenly this has been well, like you say, like you said before, a, a big a big booming business. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So exactly. So I think uh, I would call it uh, the second chapter, which I've called "Pronatal Technologies in an Antenatal State," uh, answers your question, and this is what I'm trying to do um, in that chapter is that I'm trying to highlight the fundamental irony, what you mm-hmm. what you just discussed, that surrogacy is booming in a country like India, which has such an aggressive antenatalist past. It not, it's not just an antenatal state. It's had a very aggressive antenatal past. And I don't know, um, I'm sure you are aware that India is the first country in the world to actually officiate, have an official population control program uh, and this was in 19 in the 1950s and this kind of official population control program has seen its criticism um, so people have feminists and others have critiqued it criticized it because it uh, they believe that the state was too aggressive in promoting uh, methods like sterilization but despite all this criticism the state continues quite aggressively to promote methods like sterilization and long-term hormonal implants that what what they do is diminish lower class women's power to choose. And 
this antinatalist propaganda, if I can call it that, what it does is, is that it constantly portrays the fertile bodies of lower class women in India as recklessly reproductive and at the same time to be blamed for their own poverty. So you are poor because you chose to reproduce even when we told you not to. So the reason why I start off the book with this a little bit of a history lesson is that I think understand this history, understanding this particular history of reproduction in India and reproductive politics in India reveals a lot of ironies that we need to be familiar with to understand the rest of the book. So it reveals this irony that surrogacy, which is a pronatal technology, is emerging as a booming market in an aggressively antenatal state. But it also reveals another irony. So in India, lower class women typically have very little access to, as well as very little familiarity with professionalized reproduction. So for a variety of reasons from on both the demand and the supply side, medicalization of childbirth and hospital births are not the norm in India. So, so see what that does. So suddenly the same women who were completed, completely alienated from what I call biomedicalized reproduction are suddenly pushed head on into a hyper-medicalized system of reproduction. And this history is really important to understand the different layers of domination faced by the surrogate at the level of the family, the clinic and the state. But a familiarity of this rather paradoxical history is also important for the readers and the listeners to appreciate the negotiations of these layers of domination by the surrogates. And this exact this is exactly what I explore in the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And that leads us nicely into the rest of the book. So, I mean, the the women that, that came to be surrogates, they came for many different reasons, right? And you explore this process. You know, there's a, the, there are different yeah, you you say you put choose you know in 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 in, uh, in quotation marks. So can you tell us like how uh, sort of what are the different reasons that women choose to become surrogates? Okay, before we go to the question of choice, which is a rather tricky term, let me just let me just <laughs> say that the way that women come to become surrogates. So they are three different ways. So three patterns that I observed. And this is what I talk about in the chapter that I call when the fish talk about the water. Um, So the women, there are these group of women who we would call, we would say chose surrogacy in the real sense of the word is that they walked into the clinic of their own accord. So nobody pushed them, nobody coerced them in whatever way they chose to become surrogates. So three of the women who are central characters in this book, Ramya, Dipali and Parvati, they heard about surrogacy from different sources, very often the media, but they came to the clinic without any coercion. Sometimes this would be interesting for readers. Many of these women come in even without their husband's permission. But in sharp contrast to this group, are women who absolutely have no control over the recruitment process. So they are systematically recruited by middle women, uh, the brokers always women, who go door to door from villages, uh, in villages, and uh, they choose families where they know that um, women of fertile age exists and she's looking for money. And they go and convince these women to become surrogates. 
So these women are brought in to the clinic by these brokers and they have absolutely no idea what the surrogacy thing is and they had no intentions of joining it, but they were in whatever way coerced or recruited into it. The third group, again, this comprises of very fiery women like uh, who I call Rita and Pooja. And these two women keep making their appearance in the book because they're such such fantastic characters. And these women lie, some, lie somewhere in the cusp. They are not coerced into it by strangers and brokers. Yet they don't really walk into the clinic on their own. They are convinced by their own husbands, their in-laws. And... What, the reason why I spend this whole I, I've actually spent this whole chapter talking about just the initiation or the recruitment process is because I made some assumptions about these about the connection between the recruitment process, choice, and the ultimate consequences of surrogacy for these women themselves. So I wanted to know that whether surrogates initiation into surrogacy, whether that determines her overall experience of surrogacy. Do women who choose surrogacy have more control over their earnings than women who are pushed into it by either by their families or brokers? And as a feminist scholar uh, interested in sociology of labor, I made some usual assumptions about this research before I walked into it is that I, I, I was quite sure that women who chose surrogacy as an option, so women who were not pushed by their husbands or brokers, are the ones who will be who will have control over the money and will be the ones who are likely to make the most of this labor. But I was surprised. Um, okay, let me not reveal more because I think then otherwise I'm just going to narrate the whole whole book to you. So <laughs> let me stop <laughs> that. No, it's fine. It's good. It's 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 fascinating. I was I was taken there as well. Um, no, let's yeah, let's let's go into the clinic because you describe like the the different. Um, oh, I don't know if to use if the word is disciplining, but the different sort of regimes which go on in the in the clinic. You you say that the worker, the surrogate worker, is produced in the clinic, and and this is what you talk about in the in the next chapter, in chapter four, and you say there's a tension between the worker producer, which the women have to be, and also as a mother reproducer. So I was wondering, is as a way to get us inside the clinic, can you tell us what you mean by these two terms and, and what's the tension between them? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I do. The, the word regime, I use that in the book ah, as okay. well. And um, so I'm, I'm using a Foucauldian frame of disciplinary regime. And um, in the chapter that you're referring to, which I call Manufacturing the Perfect Mother Worker, I'm essentially trying to outline the disciplinary regime at the clinic and in the various surrogacy hostels that I studied. And what I'm trying to argue is that a perfect commercial surrogate is not found ready-made. So people don't come to India and find a perfect uh, surrogate of their dreams. But this perfect surrogate is actually actively produced in the fertility clinics and surrogacy hostel. So again, it takes back, uh, it it pins exactly my main point of this book is that surrogacy is remarkable as a form of labor because it requires the laborer to be both a mother reproducer and a worker producer. And interestingly, the disciplinary regime 
very smartly exploits this duality, this dual identity of the surrogate. So the surrogate is expected to be a disciplined contract worker who gives up the baby without a fuss at the termination of the contract, just like you would in any other market where you signed a contract, you making a shirt which is not for you, you will give up the shirt once you have produced it. But she is simultaneously urged to be a very selfless and nurturing mother for the baby and a mother who will not negotiate the payment received. And this is where the tension you talk about comes in. So, so when one's identity as a mother is regulated and terminated by a contract, being a good mother has to conflict with being a good worker. So I'll just mention one tension. So in the counseling sessions for and the informal mentoring sessions at the surrogacy hostel, the women, the surrogates are told to be good, moral, selfless mothers, not just for the fetus growing inside them, but as well for their own genetic children. Hmm. But at the same time, the disciplinary regime requires them to be away from their children for the nine months. Also, the women are taught to be professional, keep to the contract, but they at the same time, they're being told not to be excessively business-minded and professional and not try to demand a higher pay. So what, what I'm trying to do in this chapter, basically, is I'm trying to show how these contradictory demands make the disciplinary regime contradictory, yes, but also excessively repressive because it has to work in very creative ways. It has to work through language and kind of discipline the perfect mother worker's mind. But also it has to effectively, uh, so you can see I'm getting all Foucauldian here, is that it also has to very effectively manage and surveil and control space and time, discipline the surrogate's body. And this is exactly what is done in the surrogacy hostels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe just um, for, for those people who maybe aren't familiar um, yeah, with, with what a uh, a hospital might look like in India. Could you maybe just describe what these what these dormitories look like a little bit? You describe it in the book, but I think it might be interesting for the listeners just to give them an idea of 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 the of the space. Yeah, I have a lot of ethnographic vignettes about the hostels in the book, precisely because I think uh, it is critical to the disciplinary regime to keep these um, surrogates in a hostel and. Typically, what a surrogacy hostel looks like, okay, maybe I should just quickly specify that not all surrogacy clinics have a hostel attached to them. But the reason why the clinic I studied has become so popular and has become the hub for transnational surrogacy is because the doctor does make sure that the surrogates are kept in a dormitory-style accommodation for the entire period that they are pregnant. So so what these dormitories look like is um, they are beds, say about 8 to 10 in a room, and these the surrogates in their first trimester are kept in one room. Uh, the surveillance is very high when the women are in the first trimester because the doctor is nervous that something might happen that might... Uh, make them miscarry. So their diet, their um, their medicine, injections, and even their leisure time activities, how what time they eat, sleep, everything is monitored and uh, controlled by the surrogacy matron. 
um the doctor makes her rounds once a day uh, to make sure that they're taking the injections in time um the the second trimester women are given and the third trimester women the ones who are um, who have uncomplicated pregnancy till then are given a lot more freedom in the sense that a lot more freedom let me qualify that are given a little more freedom uh, in the sense that they are um, allowed to sometimes walk down the stairs and go to the little garden space others are not even allowed to go down the stairs um and they are mostly they can they can even cook in the kitchen and make their own favorite food as long as it's not very spicy um the third trimester again becomes a bit of a excessive surveillance period because a lot of these women are pregnant with twins and and are hence um rather delicate is what the um, doctor calls it um so yeah so essentially they are kept in this hostel for the 9 months and again i need to add that kept needs to be unpacked because a lot of these women given a choice would perhaps say that they want to stay in the hostel because it's such a stigmatized occupation surrogacy is so stigmatized in india that a lot of them have not told uh, even their neighbors in the village that they're doing this so if they went back home how are they going to explain the bump so some of them say that it's good that this hostel system exists because then we don't have to be nervous and anxious about what we are going to tell our neighbors and what they do tell their neighbors is that they are going off to the city to become a domestic worker and a live in domestic worker and they will be back after a year so this is the typical arrangement in a dormitory Okay, thanks. That's wonderful. That gives us a, a nice, a nice picture with which to, yeah, continue this, um, yeah, continue this exploration into these women's lives. I think one of the most fascinating things that that comes up in the book is the role of divinity in this, and it comes up in many different ways. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, the role of the divine in these women's lives? Yeah, that was an interesting chapter to write. I mean, I really did not expect to write a chapter on divinity because that's definitely not uh, not been my interest till now. But but it just kept coming up, and it's interesting how the disciplinary project itself shapes the interplay of divinity and surrogacy. So, an underlying strategy of this disciplinary project that I just uh, described, especially the counseling uh, and the contract. is to kind of mystify the process of surrogacy so uh, not give surrogates too much details about what this process is all about and most of these surrogates as i said have no familiarity with biomedicalized reproduction uh, they often have no familiarity with medicalization because they can't access hospitals in most cases even when they need to so they do not understand what surrogacy really entails and this unfamiliar unexplained technology often takes the shape of the divine so this is what i'm trying to talk about in the chapter which i call everyday divinities and god's labor is that the mystique works very well for the disciplinary regime but has very interesting consequences at the level of the local so instead of being or endogamous and talking in terms like oh that's that surrogate is muslim or uh, and i am a hindu or that surrogate is christian or that surrogate is lower caste and i am upper caste or i am a christian so i can't really go and pray in the temple um so there's only one little temple area in the hostel which has only uh hindu gods so idols of hindu gods are kept there but all the surrogates irrespective of their religion 
during the six o'clock what what can I call it prayer hour all of them sit together in that temple and pray together and chant Hindu hymns so even if they're Christian or Muslim so I found that really surprising and but but then the surrogates themselves explained it to me and they constantly talked about the two gods the everyday gods Dev Dev is what they call it in Hindi in their lives so they talked about the doctor who herself has become a deity. So the doctor becomes um, Usha Devi, Usha Goddess. And surrogacy, the process itself, becomes Sarodev or Saro, Surrogate Lord. So this is this I found so interesting, the creative forms of divinity. But apart from these everyday creative forms of divinity, which seems to take center stage, were the another thing which was missing. So if 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 you read scholarship on surrogacy, you see that surrogates in other parts of the world, especially in the United States, but even in Israel, they talk about their surrogate birth as a divine gift to the clients. And they often frame themselves as angels and messengers of God. But what was so curious for me is that none of the surrogates talk like this in India. Instead, what happens, and this is how I frame it in the book, is that the disciplined surrogates of India instead construct surrogacy as God's gift to them, the needy and poor Indian mothers. So there is something very interesting happening here. But the other interesting thing that I have to point out is that the familiar idioms, familiar to scholarship in uh, on surrogacy in other parts of the world is that the, the familiar idioms of God's labor, angel, the I'm I, I'm not doing it for the money, but this is a mission. So a lot of surrogates in the United States and Israel as well have talked about their mission, their contribution to God's labor. This 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 idiom is not absent. It is instead picked up by the doctors, the brokers, and the intended mothers, who talk of themselves as missionaries involved in social work or God's labor. And they talk of the surrogates as the worthy poor and the payment as donation towards a worthy cause. So so, so in a sense, what these narr narratives of divine are doing is that they are reifying the disciplinary project. Mm -hmm. um, and can I just, just read out uh, one paragraph from the book? So oh, sure. I think in spite of the various advantages for the clients hiring surrogates in India, the rates, the wages can remain the lowest in the world, partly because the women are framed not as workers with desirable skills or qualities, but as desperate and needy mothers. The picture of a needy woman legitimizes the low pay and the framing of this transaction as a worthy cause equates the payment to a donation, informal and voluntary, the surrogate, by being trained to be a virtuous and nurturing mother and simultaneously a professional and docile worker, would hesitate from negotiating the wages she got from this labor. After all, this work was God's gift to her and she was to do this work not out of greed, but to fulfill her familiar responsibilities. And after all, she was just another womb waiting in line to be rescued by a noble foreigner. So I think that's the crux of the chapter on divinity, is what the narratives of divinity picked up by the various actors in the surrogacy process does to constructing the way surrogacy is constructed in India.
Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and we should move on, but I just would, yeah, I suppose flag up for the readers the, the, the way that the, the surrogates are framed by some of these transnational um, clients is also fascinating as well. The way they wouldn't pick, they wouldn't, they, they much feel much more happier picking the poor, needy, um, waiting to be saved um, woman in India or the womb in India rather than back in their own country in the United States where they think they, where they think that the, the potential surrogate could spend their money on drugs or or be drinking during the pregnancy but they know they're getting a good a good virtuous a good virtuous worker in India I mean that's that's also fascinating how the clients frame it but let's move on from God's labor and let's talk a little bit more about embodied labor which is what you do talk about in, in, in chapter six which is called embodied labor and neo-eugenics can you tell us a little bit about the, the work of the body here yeah I think that is one of the most unusual aspects of surrogacy is the importance of the body, the extreme corporality of it. And that strikes you in the face at every stage. Uh, and it struck me on the face at every stage of my ethnography is that the resources, the skills, and of course, the ultimate product are derived primarily from the body of the laborer. And of course, since this body, since the body is so central, the body has to be monitored, disciplined and controlled. And we see that in uh, the chapter where I talk about the disciplinary regime. But what I'm trying to do by talking about surrogacy as embodied labor is, yes, I'm trying to highlight the bodily requirements and bodily effects of surrogacy in India. Very important. But I'm also trying to make the reader see the body as a space of resistance. Mm. But maybe I should just say what I mean by the term embodied labor. So I mean a form of labor that involves the rental of the use of one's body by somebody else in which the body is the fundamental site, resource, requirement, product. And all that I I outline in two chapters in the book. Um, But but as this hyper-medicalized body of the surrogate comes under increased scrutiny, the surrogates are simultaneously using their body, the same body, to reclaim control over their lives. So I think this is the paradox and or, or the, the two things that need to be read and understood together. And again, what's important to remember when you read this chapter is the historical context that I outlined earlier. So historically, the fertile bodies of these women has been constructed as recklessly reproductive, and to be blamed for their own poverty. But for the first time, these same fertile bodies can become productive and earn them enough money to improve the financial situation of their entire families. And this is something that the surrogates celebrate. And to reclaim control over their bodies and to do what I call embodied labor, they constantly negotiate with not just the clinic, but also their families, especially their husbands and in-laws. But what I do in this so I, but what I'm doing in this chapter called Embodied Labor and Neo-Eugenics and the second part of the title makes it very clear that I'm not trying to romanticize the embodied resistances by these surrogates. Because what these individual resistances often do is that, yes, they challenge one form of domination, but they inevitably reify another type. So as the surrogates align their own reproduction through decisions about their own fertility, in order to reproduce children for others, they 
ultimately, and this is what I'm trying to argue and show in the chapter, is that they're ultimately conforming to the neoliberal global imperative of reducing the fertility of lower class women in the global south. And this is what I have called neo-eugenics, where it's so convenient that it's a subtle form of eugenics where the neoliberal notion of consumer choice can be used to justify the promotion of assisted reproductive services for the rich. And at the same time, by portraying poor people, often in the global south, as trains on the world's economy, we can continue to justify aggressive antenatal policies. And in the context of surrogacy, this neo-eugenics plays is a very critical role because this is the these are the same women who have never been allowed to access these technologies. Suddenly, it's forced on them. Suddenly, the bodies that was thought to be recklessly productive is the only way that they can be productive. And the decisions they make may be challenging domination at the local level, but ultimately, these decisions they are making are making sure that they stop being reproductive. So... I don't want to confuse everyone by saying all this, but I leave it at that. But but this chapter, I think, is my favorite chapter in the book because it so clearly captures this whole notion of stratified reproduction and what role surrogacy plays in mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I mean, it's actually for the for the future readers. I'm sure they'll realize that. I mean, the chapters all really build on each other and really fold into each other and they really start in these sort of five the second half of the book is where yeah all of these ideas start to coalesce to say and this this chapter especially they coalesce around around the role of the body and the next chapter i mean you have very nice um chapter titles so you have like chapter seven and eight are called disposable workers and dirty labor and then chapter eight is disposable mothers and kin labor i guess they're quite provocative titles in themselves so um, and i think a good way into them is just to ask you you know what makes these workers disposable and what makes the labor dirty? Yeah, so I think, again, it speaks to the disciplinary regime. So the disciplinary regime, if you remember, was about not just uh, policing, surveilling, controlling the body, but also the mind. And one of the things that is critical to forming, to manufacturing the perfect mother worker mind is to make sure that they realize that they are disposable workers with a little bit of dirtiness or stigma involved in the work that they're doing. And I'll tell you how. So at the time of recruitment, right from the time of recruitment and counseling, the surrogates are assured that they their role is very different from the role of prostitutes. So, And this is essential because a lot of women in India don't understand the technology part of it. So they think that they will have to sleep with their clients. So as a part of the counseling session, they are told implicitly, explicitly that there'll be no immoral acts involved. So you are very different from a prostitute. But nevertheless, the bad surrogate, so the bad surrogate is the one who becomes a little too business-minded. She's quickly compared to a prostitute. So what what happens is that the surrogate is constantly under the fear of crossing the thin line between morality and immorality. Oh, my God, I if I do this, I'll become a really uh, dirty worker like a prostitute. And this kind of stigma that I'm talking about is not just because 
people who are not aware equate surrogacy to prostitution. But this whore stigma or surrogacy stigma is there with all kinds of work where women are uh, crossing the boundary between private and public. So it's not very unusual in India. And also it's not unusual to these forms of work where reproductive labor becomes commodified. But what this high level of stigma or being labeled a dirty worker does is that it also brings about very interesting dynamics in the way that the surrogates neutralize the stigma attached to this new form of dirty labor. And when they try to convince themselves and others and me in the narratives that they are very different from prostitutes, uh, in quotes, prostitutes, they they constantly do boundary work. So they say, no, 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 we are not like these immoral women who get so desperate that they uh, go out on the street and become prostitutes. We are not like those immoral women who sell their own babies or their own genetic babies. So they are constantly doing this, what I call boundary work in their narratives. But they're also doing another thing by these narratives. They, are, they constantly keep reiterating that I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not dirty and I'm not disposable. Although the clinic is constantly trying to tell them that they are disposable. If, if not their womb, any other Indian womb would be fine. So there's nothing special about their skills. But constantly what these surrogates, are, uh, what the narratives of these surrogates showed to me is that they do two things together. They say that we are not dirty because we are morally higher than prostitutes. But we are also not disposable. We are special and we have long lasting relations with our clients. Clients choose us over others because of our special qualities and and many other discursive strategies that they use. And of course, like the rest of the chapters, what I do at the end is that I bring out the consequences of these kind of discursive strategies, uh, where, yes, they do end up challenging the notion of surrogacy as dirty work, but they end up reifying other forms of power relations. Um, yeah, so hmm. that's the chapter on dirty work and disposable workers. Wonderful. I think I read, I think I read chapter eight out wrong before. I think I was... I was meant to say disposable mothers and kin labor. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I wrote it down wrong. But um, I think that's, yeah. But anyway, let's go into that now. Let's talk a little bit about, about what makes the mothers disposable and, and sort of how, how this process interacts with family relations this is what's fascinating here. Yeah. So so like in the previous one, in chapter seven that I just discussed, what I'm I'm trying to show is that the women are, challenging the notion that they are disposable workers by saying that they are special, that they have special characteristics. But but the other thing that they are constantly doing, because remember, they are mother workers and not just workers, is that they are constantly trying to challenge the clinic's notion that they are disposable mothers. So what the disciplinary regime at the clinic does is that the nurses and the hostel matrons constantly tell them that they're mothering role is very transitory that there the baby would be taken away from them immediately after birth that they will not be allowed to breastfeed the baby so they are mothers only till the contract period but the surrogates do not take these teachings with a fight so i introduce in this last empirical chapter uh, which i called uh, what do i call it this 
disposable mothers and kin labor. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to do is I introduce the concept of kin labor as a subversive strategy used by the surrogates to challenge the construction of surrogates as disposable mothers. And anthropologists and other readers might be familiar with the notion of kin work, which was coined by a cultural anthropologist, uh, Michaela de Leonardo. And she was talking about um, the kinds of mundane work done always by women to maintain contacts and a sense of family. And she was trying, her her whole point was to argue that all these kind of work need time, intention and skill and should be recognized as work. So, so she was talking about writing Christmas cards and very different things. But what I, I'm, I'm taking the frame of kin work and expanding it in the not- into the notion of kin labor to try and reveal to the readers the whole range of labor performed by the surrogates to establish and maintain ties with the baby. Mm-hmm. So to completely and explicitly challenge the notion that they are disposable mothers by saying that we have kin ties, very, very established kin ties with the baby, with the fetus growing inside us, which will continue with beyond the contract period. But also, interestingly, they also established kin ties with the intended mothers and other surrogates at the hostel. Mm-hmm. And these these that these creative kin ties are absolutely so powerful i mean once you once you go through the chapter i mean i can't possibly read out the narratives of these women when they talk about the really the the painful and difficult ways in which they establish ties with the baby the intended mother and with other surrogates but but okay so let me let me just talk with that Okay, and I, you know, I, I said you mentioned something that I was I was going to mention at the end, but it's a good it's a good time to mention it now. Is that um, the the words of 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 the surrogates are really powerful, and this is something you're not going to get from listening to this podcast, but it's definitely a a good reason uh, to 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 read the book itself because they're really powerful statements from from the women, and and it really shows you can really feel that they want to tell a story. And um, it's, re- it's it's very beautiful, uh, yeah, very beautifully put in their own words, and very, and very powerfully put. So, really, I would strongly recommend people to 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 check out the book for that reason. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm usually reading books for this podcast, I'm searching for questions that I want to ask the um, I want to ask the author. But luckily, at the end of the book, you ask you ask three very provocative questions yourself, and I suppose they're good questions now to ask back to you to sort of to try and to try and sum up. And, and, and to conclude is you ask yourself, who cooks the dinner? Where did the money go? And, and this is the title of the epilogue. And did the sperm on the rickshaw save the third world? Yeah, so did it? <laughs> <laughs> so let me start with the last one. The reason why I love that question, did, did the sperm on the rickshaw save the third world? That's one of the reasons why I got into this project is that I saw an Oprah Winfrey show where uh, she talked about the the men and women traveling to this land, the strange land called India to get their children. Uh, and she talked about the sperm on the rickshaw because the very often what happens is that the men don't even travel to India. They just send their sperms with their wives. So, and the wives are sitting on rickshaws with their husband's sperm in whatever they're carrying it in and they go into these clinics and then the whole process of surrogacy starts. So that's why I thought, thought it was 
interesting to end with did the sperm on the rickshaw save the third world but but to the more empirical questions who cooks the dinner so that's one thing i was really interested in finding out and one of the uh, good things of doing a project over such a long term so i have been involved in this project for over 8 years now so i have constantly revisited the surrogates i've met the surrogates who i call veteran surrogates who do it over and over again some of them for the third time in 4 years uh, i've also revisited women post delivery to see whether their ideas about surrogacy their narratives whether these change post delivery because it's very different to have the baby still growing inside you and talk about what will happen how you will feel post delivery but it, this might change completely when you actually have to give up the baby and this might change when all the money that you earn is suddenly taken away by your husband so i wanted to see what happens post delivery uh and one of the things that i was interested in again a sociologist who's interested in both gender and labor i wanted to see does surrogacy have any long term impact on the gender division of labor within the household so if you read my book one of the things you see is that the men are present but they are all, always kind of lurking in the background but but i assumed that once the woman goes back to her house her involvement in this unusual labor is going to have an impact whatever be it negative or positive on the relations between her and her husband so who cooks the dinner is one good way of looking at it does anything change at all and and yes for in most cases i found that um in the short term there are some changes in the sense that husbands are forced to learn certain things like uh, at least make their meal the breakfast for the children but very often the task that the surrogate is not able to do while she's in the hostel is taken up by other female kin and the husbands don't really end up learning much and this is reflected when when i go when i went back and revisited the houses of the surrogates when post delivery so the women are back into their house the women often told me yes yes he he does respect me a little bit more because i did get a substantial amount of money in mm, he has learned how to boil water but uh, not much has changed it is back to business as far as he's concerned and as far as the gender division of labor is concerned now uh, where did the money go so another very important thing because that keeps on coming up in mainstream portrayal of surrogacy in india as very often these women uh, women in india are portrayed as women who are lucky recipients of a lottery ticket and their whole life is going to change with surrogacy but strangely or not strangely surrogacy does not change most of their lives i mean very often and this i mention this because this has come up in the narratives of almost all the women is that because it's the extended family norm in india almost all the women said that a substantial chunk of the money is spent on some uncle's illness or some niece's illness so hospital expenditure or or uh, making sure that the roof is not leaking so some kind of everyday expenditures and the money is all gone so the 
often these women think that it's going to completely change the life of their families, especially a lot of them hope and dream that this would change the life of their daughters. They want to use the money to send their daughters to a good school, to a college, to make sure that they have some money for their daughter's dowry, which is also very important for a lot of them. But very often they, when I met them a year or two after, they would say, the money just went away. I mean, I don't know where it went. And it's it's because actually the money is very little given that given the inflation in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is the very very uh, empirical questions that I'm dealing with in the epilogue. That does surrogacy really change the life of these women? But but I don't want to end with such a negative note because there are these two or three central characters in the book whose life I am tracing out through the various chapters who have been able to make the most of surrogacy and they have been able to use the money either to start a business for their husbands and this they think is empowering. They have been able to use the money to help their husbands or they have been able to use the money to start a business venture of their own and be able to um, do something again very often related to uh, fertility. So maybe become um, nannies in the new hospital connected to the surrogacy clinic but but also be able to change their lives if not entirely but a little bit okay wonderful it's good no it's good to end on a positive note and thank you so much for your time i know we've taken up a lot of your time today and it really is a, a fascinating book and i'd strongly recommend it to people who are who are interested in labor who are interested in uh, and gender studies and anyone who's interested in uh, South Asian studies as well. It really brings together many different um, many different fields. But before we go, I was wondering if we can ask you the traditional last question we ask guests on the podcast is, what are your future projects? What are you working on now? Hmm. Well, a project that I've started very recently, so I would not say I'm an expert on this yet, is actually linked to this project on surrogacy. So one of the things that is in a way coming and going in the book is race. So I talk a lot about citizenship, gender, nationality, class, religion, caste, but race is something which does not play a central role. The connection between race and new reproductive technologies. Um, So one of the things, the basic thing I'm exploring in my next project, the project I'm involved with right now, is um, the connection between surrogacy in India, the surrogacy industry in India, and uh, egg providers in South Africa. So again, this might not be dinner table conversation for a lot of us, but it's very interesting, the kind of bio crossings that are going on uh, in this fertility industry, the global fertility industry. And one of the things that India does not have is Caucasian, if I can be really crude, white egg (laughs) providers. And who is providing that? South African egg donors. And this is this connection I'm I'm exploring also because I'm situated in South Africa. It becomes quite easy for me to do it. This connection between race, new technologies and racial hierarchies. Wow, that sounds fascinating. And that's something for us all to look out for in the future. So thanks again. Thanks a lot. It's really a wonderful book and it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today, we've been talking about wombs in labor by Amrita Pandey. Thanks a lot again for downloading and hope to see you next time. ta